We are so delighted you are here. If you have a Bible, let's go to the book of Luke. It's where we're going to go. We're going to go to Luke this morning. Uh, we're going to start in chapter 4. And uh, we're going to meet somebody that we're going to read about in chapter 5. We're going to relook at a passage that uh, last two weeks ago, doc, the good Dr. Fletcher uh, took us through. We're going to look at it again. There's just so much there. Luke chapter 4. So in this particular instance, we meet somebody named Simon. And Luke chapter 4, verse 39, very early in Jesus' ministry, he left the synagogue, went home, or excuse me, went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. Now, if, if he's got a mother-in-law, Simon's what? He's married, just in case you were wondering how that works. Uh, and he, she was suffering from a high fever. They asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. And all the moms said, yep, that's kind of how it works. You know, you just, you're on death, your deathbed one moment and then you're cooking dinner the next moment. And um, no, but, but, you know, we've talked about this before that, that Jesus uh, you know, there's this sense that that sometimes you, you get this image that Jesus is just kind of strolling around the countryside. He comes across random fishermen and he says, hey, why don't you drop everything and follow me? And maybe that's how some of them happen. But in this case, the encounter Simon's going to have with Jesus that we're about to read about um, was preceded by this, by them asking Jesus to come and heal her, uh, his mother-in-law. And he did just that. Flip over to chapter 5, verse 1. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is another way of saying the Sea of Galilee, a little, a little more fancy sounding, if you will, the people were crowding around Jesus and listening to the Word of God. Interesting that as Jesus was speaking, it was received as the Word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. Now, washing their net, nets is a cultural clue that they are done fishing for the night. They fished all night, and they're now washing their nets to keep them from rotting, and they'd use them again uh, the next night. All right, So the fishing is done for, that, for these particular fishermen. Uh, Jesus, verse 3, got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, we just met Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So evidently some of the hillsides and the water form this kind of natural amphitheater. Sitting down is the, is the posture a teacher would take in that culture. So he just sits down and because of the acoustics he can just have a conversation with a large group of people. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now, it doesn't sound like much to us, but think about what Jesus is asking. Is Jesus an expert fisherman? No, he's a tecton. A, a, he's either a stone worker or a woodworker of some way, shape, or form. Um, he's obviously got a bit of healing power to him, but when it comes to like practical stuff, he's not a fisherman. So the non-fisherman is asking the professional fisherman to go take the nets they've just cleaned that are designed for night fishing and to use them during the day. Now, can you, I, I would have had a different response than what Peter does. I would have said, you know, Jesus, go ahead and stick to the spiritual stuff. I, I know fishing. We just did it. It didn't work. All right? They're not biting or however, they're not catching or being caught or whatever. Simon responds, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. In other words, the professionals have tried it 
And it didn't work. And so you're asking us to go at the wrong time with the wrong nets after a night of backbreaking work. And if we cast our nets down and don't catch anything, guess what? We've got to clean them again. So thanks for nothing. But he says instead, but because you say so, and parenthesis, you healed my mother-in-law, I will let down the net. (laughs) When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They, uh, they came and, bo- and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. All right, now, I would imagine you've got two thoughts if you're Peter. First thought is cha-ching, right? Because it's like pulling up $10 bills. I don't know how long the income from two boats full of fish would last you. Some have estimated two weeks to a month. I have no idea. But this was massive. This was hitting the fish lottery, if you will, for these guys. And on the other hand, it's so full, the boats are beginning to sink. So you're in danger of losing the boats that are your livelihood and all the fish you just caught. So you've got a bit of, uh, you're happy for the fish, you've got a bit of fear. But what's interesting is Peter, what Peter does in the midst of this, as all the fish are flopping around and the other boats coming out to help them, notice it says in verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful Man. Now, why does he say that? I mean, why wouldn't he say thank you? Appreciate the help. Thanks for the catch. But, but, and, and, and if you think about it, I mean, Peter's livelihood's just like, I mean, he's just, he's just hit the jackpot. But in this moment, he sees beyond the fish and the dollar signs. He sees beyond the fear of losing the boat. And his eyes look at Jesus now differently than even when he healed his mother and all. Now it's like, Who are you? Wrong nets, wrong time. You put them down and now we're swamped. Who are you? And so Peter does what in the Bible kind of everyone does when they realize they're in the presence of divinity. They fall down and they admit they're not worthy. What is it that qualifies Peter? Simon Peter is his name. We will know him as Peter. What is it that qualifies Peter to be used in God's revolution? Was it his great theological training? It was not. He was a fisherman. Was it his incredible faith and obedience? Nope, we're going to see in just a moment how crazy that obedience was. I believe that what Luke does here in recording this for us is to set up the paradigm that Luke will keep bringing back before us. Those that are self-righteous, who are utterly assured of their place in the revolution of God, those are the ones most in danger. But the ones who are humble, the ones who are the poor in spirit and otherwise, the ones who recognize their need and inherent unworthiness, those people, Jesus looks at them and says, great, I can use somebody just like you. And so what Peter does is emulate for us the response of all the disciples to come, which is there's something about him and the recognition that there's no part of deserving to join that movement. Peter says, depart from me. I am a sinful 
Man, now commentators will rightly notice a parallel between this story and a story in Isaiah. Flip, keep your finger here, but flip to Isaiah chapter 5. A brief point to make. Isaiah chapter 5. Now, Isaiah, Isaiah is, a, is a messenger of woe. And woe being W-O-E and not W-H-O-A. Alright, so he's not a surfer. Kind of woe. He's pastor of woe, which is warning of impending judgment, right? So, was that good? That was solid, right there. From the young kids, right there. See, that's why the young kids. Chapter 5. If you're new and you're wondering, do they always dress up this way? Once a year. This, unless someone dies, who, who I know, this will not be worn again. Until next year at this time. Isaiah chapter 5, verse uh, 8. So Isaiah has got some woe to pronounce. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field until no space is left. Jump down to verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night until they are inflamed with wine. Jump over to verse 18. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks. He is pronouncing over Israel, woe to you and woe to you and woe to you. And just in case you were falling asleep, woe to you and woe to you. Right? He's just woe. To everybody else. Until he gets to chapter 6. Notice verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, a kind of angel. Each with six wings. Two wings they covered their faces. Two they covered their feet. Two they were flying. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices... The doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then what does he say? Woe is me! I am ruined! Now, I just find it so interesting that woe to you, and woe to you, and woe to you, and woe to you, until he sees God. And then, it's woe to me. Right? One of the surest signs you've actually encountered the real God is that pride is the first thing to go. One of the surest signs you're growing in maturity in following Jesus is that the sins of other people get smaller and your sins get bigger. Not the reverse. Really easy to pronounce woe on other people until you get a hold of the living fire that is our God and you realize, no, 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 hold on a second. Woe is me. See, what Luke will do throughout the rest of his Gospel is that those people who are sure and confident of their insider status, those are the ones most in jeopardy of missing out. But those, the humble, the poor, the brokenhearted, the sinful, those who know to the depths of their being they have no right, no claim, no merit-based point system to point back to in front of God. And all they can say, depart from me. I'm I'm sinful. Not worthy. I am ruined in the presence of something so magnificent. Jesus looks at those people and says, Ah, 
Now that's somebody I can use. And so one of the things when Jesus starts talking about, hey, you know, if you want to confront somebody about their, the dust, the speck of dust in their own eye, take care of the like, tree trunk in yours first. Right? It's really, really easy to just pronouncing woe until you come close to the light that is called a consuming fire and then you realize the declaration of discipleship, the first step into the movement of Jesus is the recognition you don't deserve to be there. And that, ah, God says, that's something I can use. This point is so incredibly important because what God does with a heart like that, in Isaiah, He touches His lips to cleanse them, and then He commissions them to be a prophet. But notice what He does with Peter. Flip back to Luke. Notice what He does with Peter. Peter's request is depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Does Jesus listen? One person is with me. No, he doesn't listen. Right? See, he's not horrified by human sinfulness. Now, his church may be, but he's not. He's not shocked. He says, You're somebody I can use. And so, notice what he says. I mean, I just think it's so brilliant. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. Okay, now who else says this all throughout the book of Luke? Angels. Anytime angels appear, the first thing they got to say is don't be afraid. Because evidently, any encounter you have as a human being with something this crazy, you've got to be assured you're not about to disintegrate. Right? And so, don't be afraid. Jesus doesn't say, hey, get your act together and then follow me. He doesn't say, let's send you to school and then follow me. He just simply says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. You've been fishing for fish, and when you catch them, they die. Now you're going to fish for people, and your catching of them will lead to their life, in other words. Don't miss the significance of one of the lead, preeminent leaders of the early church movement. The first time we meet him, he self-confesses he's sinful. The story isn't about Peter choosing Jesus as much as it is Jesus choosing Peter. Because how good does Peter do over the next several chapters? How good does he do? Not so much. Right? Flip over to chapter 9. He has moments of sheer brilliance. And then moments of not so muchness. Right? Luke chapter 9. So here's one of those moments. Jesus is sitting and he's teaching his disciples. He says, listen, who do the crowd say that I am? And they say, listen, you're, they say you're John the Baptist part two. You're one of the old prophets. Come back. Jesus looks at his disciples. Verse 20. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you are God's Messiah. First time we've heard it from the lips of somebody other than demons. Right? That this is actually God's Messiah in the book of Luke. Awesome. Now, Luke doesn't tell us this next bit, but Matthew fills in some color. That Jesus immediately says, good, right answer. But, as Messiah, I have to suffer and die. And then Peter, in his newly minted role as awesome, in Matthew it says he begins to rebuke God's Messiah about suffering and dying. To the place where Jesus will look at him and say, get behind me, Satan. You have no part of what's happening by saying what you're saying. 
So, Peter, massive success. You are God's Messiah. And instantly rebuked as being in league with the enemy. All right. Go to verse 33. Then Peter and James and John are invited with Jesus to go up to a mountainside to pray. While Jesus is praying, he's transformed. His humanness diminishes just a little bit and his glory shines through. Now, he's not ceasing to be human. I don't mean to say that. I just mean to say he's transfigured. His, his innate glory starts to peek through a little bit. And, and, and then Moses and Elijah, okay, two of the big guns of the Old Testament show up. And they start ministering to Jesus. And imagine you're these young Jewish guys and you're going, this is awesome. I mean, there's Moses and there's Elijah and here's Jesus. I mean, we hear this voice from him. This is awesome. So Peter says, verse 33, as the men were leaving, the two men, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then notice the parenthetical statement that Luke adds. He did not know what he was saying. (laughs) Right? Now, that doesn't sound so bad to us. I mean, you're sitting there with Moses and Elijah and Jesus. I mean, it's perfectly natural to say, hey, we, let's spend a little more time. This is pretty awesome. Right? But for whatever reason, Jesus was like, hey, that, we're, we're kind of done here. I've got stuff to do. And so Luke adds this parenthetical comment. He did not know what he was really saying. Which could be added after most of my sentences too. But the point is, the point is... If, you, if, if Peter's going to be one of the movements of this revolution, don't you want to scrub that bit out? You know, a bit embarrassing. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I trust these accounts is because they include all the stuff that's embarrassing of the people who are now going to be apostles of the movement. Peter is just so brilliant. Go, go if you would to uh, chapter 22. Um. This is uh, not something you ever want to hear from Jesus. Ever. Luke 22, verse 31. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you, my disciples, as wheat. You never want to hear that. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Notice he doesn't pray to remove Simon from the possibility of failure. He just prays that your faith will not fail and that when you have turned back, that you would strengthen your brothers. Simon hears this. Newly minted pastor of awesome. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus replies, ah, not so much. Before dawn, When the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then we actually read about that happening. Verse um, 54. Jesus is being arrested. Then seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said... This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him. You were also one of them, the Jesus followers. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. 
Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, Matthew records that at this time, Jesus, or excuse me, that Peter actually swore and called down a curse on himself if he were lying. Okay, so this wasn't like, oh yeah, no, we've never really met. I mean, this was, this was pretty big. Right when he'd done it the third time, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now, if you're part of the early church community writing these documents, don't you want to kind of scrub that part out? I mean, I will never leave you. I'm prepared to go to prison or to death for you. Nope. Jump over to the book of John. John chapter 18. Just a couple more examples of Peter's journey to make the point. John chapter 18, verse 10. Jesus is being arrested. (laughs) Then Simon Peter, who for three years had been walking around with the Jesus who says, love and forgive your enemies took a sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Oh, awesome. You really got the lesson, Peter. That was fantastic. Right? And Jesus looks at him and says, put that away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In other words, what are you doing? And another gospel says, all who live by the sword will die by the sword. What? What? And evidently, Peter wasn't a very good aim. I mean, what's cutting the ear off going to do? Is that really going to stop the arrest? I mean... He was a fisherman, evidently, not a swordsman. But the point is, how quickly did Peter get it? Not so much. Flip over to chapter 20. And then there's this weird competition thing he has with John. This is so odd. I love it. I love it. So John refers to himself by the title, the disciple who Jesus loves. Okay, now that sounds totally ridiculous to us, right? But by the conventions of the day, it wasn't so bad. It was a way to refer to yourself without, you know, stating your name all the time. And, but it sounds like he's saying, yeah, and then Jesus' favorite did, you know, whatever. But, but notice this. So, so we're just finding out the tomb is empty. Mary Magdalene runs back to the disciples. Okay, she came running, verse 2, to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. Now, notice some of the detail here. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Why do we care? Why does that matter? Who cares? Right? I mean, that's just an odd thing to throw in there. And then... He, the other disciple, bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along what? Behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. What? Are you kidding me? So, Jesus has just risen from the dead. But let me be clear, who got there first? Right? Right? 
We were both running, but the other disciple reached the tomb first. And then Peter, who was behind him, came along. And then the other disciple, who'd reached the tomb first, went in. I mean, what is that? That's, I, I don't know of any theologically significant reason why that like, was referenced a couple of times there. Except to say, these guys turn out to be really human. And frail. And imperfect. And in fact, notice, flip the page, or at least I'll flip my page. Chapter 21, verse 4. This is just amazing. This is after Jesus had risen from the dead, and according to John, it appeared to them a couple of times. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. So, they're back up at the Sea of Galilee. The disciples left, and Peter went back to fishing. Don't miss the significance of that. Jesus was standing on the shore, but they didn't realize it was Him. He called out to them, Hey friends, have you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large catch of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord! As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. And then the other disciples show up and then Jesus cooks them breakfast because when you have conquered hell and death, you're hungry. And so he literally cooks them breakfast. Now think about that. What a way to get Peter's attention after Peter denies him three times. I'm going to do the exact same fishing miracle again just to make sure you don't miss What's going on? Have you caught anything? Nope. Oh, boy. Why don't you try this side? And then they're swamped again. And then Jesus, after they'd finished eating, said to Simon Peter, verse 15, <coughs> Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And we don't know what the these are. Could it be the fishing stuff? Could it be, I, I don't know. Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Take care of my followers. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him three times. Now, why would Jesus ask three times? How many times did Jesus, or how many times did Peter deny him? So, three times we're not going to restore him. Brilliant. Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And indeed, Church history tells us that Peter was crucified years later, hanging upside down. He refused to be crucified right side up because he did not want to die in the same way Jesus had died. Now, my question for us is simply this. Rewind back to Luke 5. On the day, the fish are swamping the boat. And Peter kneels down in the presence of something magnificent. And he says... Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus, instead of being repelled by Peter's sinfulness, says, you're the kind of guy I can use. And then the text says, Peter left everything and followed. What if we could have shown Peter what the next 
decades of life were going to entail, what would that have been like? Would he have still said yes? Peter, you're going to see me as God's Messiah and then I'm going to rebuke you as Satan. Peter, you're going to see me transfigured and then not know what you're saying. Peter, you're going to reach the tomb last (laughs) on the day of my resurrection. (laughs) Right? Peter, you're going to deny me three times and then I'm going to restore you three times. And then, Peter, go to the book of Acts. Chapter 2, verse 14. And then Peter, look at this. Peter stood up with the eleven other disciples, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. And then he begins the first recorded sermon of the early church. And the text tells us that 3,000 people were captured by this ex-fisherman that day. Would Peter have said yes? Again, I think he would have. But the significance isn't so much Peter choosing Jesus. It's that Jesus chose Peter knowing. Was Peter a mess? Yep. He was violent. He was ambitious. He was impetuous. He was mouthy. He didn't know what he was saying. And yet, Jesus didn't require that Peter get cleaned up before Peter followed. Don't miss the significance of this. See, brothers and sisters, there's this kind of thread, I think, floating around in Christian subculture where you've got to get cleaned up before you can follow Jesus. And that's just not the way Jesus Himself worked. That's a church thing, not a Jesus thing. You've got to understand... Peter was chosen not because he had his theology together, not because he had it figured out, not because he had his stuff taken care of. He was chosen because he recognized he was in the presence of something magnificent. He was humble enough to recognize he didn't deserve to be there. The only attitude that disqualifies you from service in God's kingdom is the belief you deserve to be there. But if you have a past, if you're fallen, sinful, if you're a screw-up, a misfit, an outcast, and are humble enough to simply say, I don't deserve it, but I'd sure love to be a part, Jesus will look at you and say, you're exactly the kind of person I can use. And how do we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that's the way it works? Because you look at Peter. What was his journey? It was up and down. It was left and right. It was all over. It was blasphemy. It was faithlessness. It was some success and some awesomeness. And the story ends with him casting that so large. 3,000 people are coming to faith that day. But it doesn't move in a straight line. It was a windy, windy road. Don't miss the significance of Peter's admission that he's a sinful man and Jesus still looking at him and saying, yep, yep, I choose you. I moved out here from the great state of Ohio and, and in Ohio, and I've said this before, but please forgive the repetition, in Ohio we do very strange things. We graduate from college and move out, we clean our own homes and we mow our own yards. Okay, so that's kind of how we roll in the great state of Ohio. I moved out here And I got connected with a family who I just absolutely adored. The family, on one particular day, was cleaning feverishly in my presence. I asked them the very natural question, why are you cleaning feverishly? To which they responded with a very unnatural answer. We are cleaning because the cleaning lady is almost here. (laughs) To which I said, that's very odd because if the cleaning lady were coming to my house, I'd be dirtying. I would not be cleaning at at that point, right? 
And so the idea that you had to somehow clean before the cleaning lady got there, I think that some, that idea sort of filters its way into the Christian subculture where we communicate in subtle or not so subtle ways that you got to get cleaned up first before you go to the cleaners. But we want to say, no, it's precisely in following Jesus that you get cleaned up. It's not before. If you're here, you're still working out, okay, what's sexuality mean for me? You're not disqualified from following Jesus. If you're here, you got doubts. You're not disqualified. You're here, you got addictions. You're not disqualified. There is nothing in the Scripture that says other than simply the absolute act of God, I need you, I need you, I admit I don't deserve you, I admit there's sin and darkness in me. That admission is the only admission required to get in. If you are a screw-up, a misfit, an outcast, you are usable in the kingdom and in the purposes of God. And we dare not in any way tell people they've got to get it figured out before they start following because it is precisely in the following that they get cleaned up. And so, brothers and sisters, this story gives me such great hope. Because I'm, I'm Him. I'm the chief of sinners. I, I don't know any of your darkness. I can guess at it, but I know mine. Right? And I hope the longer I follow Jesus and the clearer He becomes, the more I recognize the darkness still in me. And that that leads me not to say, depart from me, Jesus, but thank You for coming for me. That's the difference now. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we just simply say, I'm not worthy, but I happen to be of unsurpassable worth. I don't deserve to be here, but evidently my image-bearing humanness, however God knit me together in the womb of my parents, however that worked, was enough that Jesus would come and die and demonstrate such unsurpassable love that I can now say, I'm not worthy, but I'm not worthless either. Right? We can sing, oh, how He loves us. And we know that to be true. But at the same time, the first thing you go when you encounter the consuming fire is pride. Not woe is you, not woe is you, not woe is you. When I see Him, woe is me. And that. Oh, He can do great stuff with that. Every now and again, I'll talk to somebody who will say, I believe you don't have to be an official licensed person of the church to serve communion or to baptize. I'm a very big fan of something called the priesthood of all believers. But every now now and again, I'll have somebody who will say, "I, I can't baptize my children. I'm not worthy. I can't serve communion. I'm not worthy. And I just want to say, did you deny Jesus three times? Did you cut off the ear of the high priest? Did you come in second place in the race to the empty tomb? Right? Or you take Paul. Were you murdering Christians? I mean, come on. Worthy has nothing to do with it. So that abortion, God can cover that. That infidelity, that divorce, that depression. I mean, whatever it is you're trucking in here that you're sure disqualifies you from usefulness. We just want to say, no, no, the good news is that Jesus wants to cover it, forgive it, to heal it, and then to use it as a platform for catching people. If you're here and you're somebody that's just humble enough to say, man, I don't deserve to be here. Jesus of Nazareth would look at you in this moment and simply say, great. You're exactly the kind of person I'm looking for. Dare we believe the good news is that good. And so Father God,
So easy to sing. Oh, how he loves us. So easy to sing about your grace and your mercy. So hard to actually believe you're like that. And Father, none of us come, sing, listen, or serve today out of any inherent point system or merit. We come today because we think that the grace of the Lord Jesus is so magnificent He can cover the darkest parts of our hearts. And Father, that You are looking for broken people, which is great because it's the only kind of people there are, evidently. And so, Father, for those who live under a cloud of condemnation this morning, assured of the fact that they are not usable because of their present, their future, or their past, would You extend to them, as only Your Holy Spirit can, the good news of their grace, their mercy, their redemption, and their usefulness in their humility. And so, Father, we do pray you would have mercy on us. Bring glory to the name of your Son.